Hello, hello to all listeners tuning in today and welcome to Epitome. My name is Jim and I'm with my co-host Jed and our team of reporters, Kat, Alyssa, Nicole, and Jancy. Without further ado, let's take you to a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go around the world without leaving the comfort of wherever you may be listening. Buckle up, people, as we explore the COVID-19's world tour. First things first, how you doing, Jed? How have you been? Well, Jim, I gotta say, the past few weeks have been really stressful, and I know you can relate. And, you know, I never really expected, and I think I speak for everybody when I say this, that this lockdown would last so long. I mean, how long has it been? If I'm not mistaken, lockdowns have been initiated since March 16, so that marks roughly around 7 months ever since. Oh, wow. It's not like we can just lift lockdown restrictions, though. Right, right. Here's the thing. We have over 360,000 cases all over the country and only 85% have recovered. Our daily confirmed cases or the incidence rate of COVID-19 in our country is sitting at about 1,950. Definitely still a long way to go. Now the good news is that the daily count of cases has been steadily decreasing for the most part this October. But are we doing a good enough job though in terms of epidemiologic response standards? Did we do our best? Because look, I'm on social media and I see other countries already easing lockdowns, opening their economies, and schools being reopened. How did they differ in terms of implementation of these responses? Yes, I see your point. But I think in order to answer your question, there's no better way to know than to zoom out a bit and take a look at what our neighbors are doing. What are they doing right? What are they doing not so right? Are you ready for the COVID-19 world tour? Of course I am, Jim. Listeners, I hope you have your passports with you because we're going on a trip. First stop, Japan. And we're here! Alright, we better contact our partner and ask about the COVID situation in Japan. That would be Jansi-san. Let me call her real quick. Hello Jansi-san, how's it going? Thank you so much for coming to our show. Can you tell us how things went down in Japan? Hi, for the most part, I must say that the response of the Japanese government has been competent and proactive. Cases in Japan have plateaued after declining during September. Right now, we're sitting at 563.9 daily confirmed cases. So, I read an article a few days ago, and please confirm if it's true or not, but is it true the Japanese government doesn't really have the authority to enforce lockdowns? If so, how did your country attempt to contain the spread of COVID-19 then? Yes, not many know this, but Japan's leaders have no legal power to enforce a lockdown. Instead of enforcing countrywide lockdowns, the government declared a state of emergency in stages. This encourages non-essential businesses to shut their doors, companies to promote more teleworking, and live entertainment events to be cancelled. In fact, there are no penalties if people choose to not do so. Alright, interestingly enough, that seems to have worked. Most people opted to stay home instead, otherwise we'd see a lot more cases, right? So, how are things nowadays? Well, bars, restaurants, museums, services, and even attractions are largely back to normal operating hours. Although the national state of emergency has been lifted, heightened awareness of the danger remains and has helped curtail any major increase in infections. You see, the Japanese government has been taking a decentralized approach and leaving much of the decision-making up to regional governors. I see. I'm curious though, What other public health measures has Japan put in place in response to COVID-19? Are your testing and contact tracing strategies 
any different from other countries, especially given that lockdowns can't really be implemented. In terms of testing, Japan differs from other countries by intensely focusing testing on clusters rather than making it more widely available. Rather than eliminate the risk of infection, Japan's objective is to stop the spread of the disease to keep the number of patients to a minimum. This is to help alleviate the demand for medical care and maintain sufficient hospital resources to take care of the most serious patients. Given its finite testing, testing was restricted to those already showing symptoms, with the objective being to diagnose a disease before it got too serious. Currently, however, it is possible to perform nearly 30,000 tests per day. And we have the same cluster-focused approach for contact tracing. Due to privacy concerns, Japan was unable to utilize apps for contact tracing. Instead, their public health centers had to call every person under investigation to determine who they had contact with in the last two weeks. This revealed clusters of infected individuals usually originating from a single source in the chain. With no penalties being enforced on individuals who choose not to follow the recommendations given by the government, what social measures then are being done in Japan? Well, I've read somewhere that mask wearing has a deeply ingrained aspect in Japan long before the coronavirus pandemic. What can you say about this? That's definitely true, Jetsan. In times past, the sacred sakaki, or a Japanese face covering, was used to prevent one's unclean breath from tainting religious rituals or festivals. In more modern times, a major event that catalyzed mask wearing among the Japanese was the 1918-1920 Spanish flu, which is estimated to have killed 450,000 people in Japan. So, how did Japan stay on top of the COVID situation on a national level? You see, Japan's COVID-19 response could be best described as a regional public health system, which are 460 centers spread out across the archipelago, staffed by doctors, nurses, and pharmacists. These PHCs took the brunt of COVID-19 management, triaging, patient surveillance, contact tracing, and testing. Come mid-April, when things were getting heated, the PHCs started to be integrated to a wider network of hospitals and private facilities to address the growing volume of patients. And that's all I have for you today. Thanks, Jancy. Looks like the whole world can learn something from Japan's example. From the PHCs to the sustained vigilance even months later, the country did a beautiful job. We'll see you around. Absolutely brilliant, Jancy. Indeed, Japan can be seen as one of the best in this fight against COVID-19. Jed, I'm sorry too, but we gotta catch our flight. Let's go. Oh, right, right, okay. But before we go, I just want to say thank you, Jan. Yo, that was too fast. I might get sick, Stop man. Stop complaining, bro. We don't have a lot of time. Fine, fine. Let's just contact our man on the ground. Annyeonghaseyo, chingu cat. Kat, I know you're a busy woman, so I'll get straight to the point. How would you describe the epidemiological response of South Korea to COVID-19? One Korean word, tebak. I must say, Jim, things are returning to normal here in South Korea, and this can be attributed to the government's quick and aggressive response. Cases have been declining since September, and now the challenges we face are small outbreaks within communities. Our daily confirmed cases is measured at 88 cases. So how does the government keep things under control? South Korea used three principles in the fight against COVID-19. Test, trace, and isolate. Okay, let's start with the first one. How were they able to test so many people 
so fast. Well, Jim, as soon as the first positive case landed in South Korea, the government had already urged pharmaceutical companies to expedite coronavirus test kits and told manufacturers to prepare for mass production. Wow, that was a really good call. Yes, and if you notice, cases started to spike in March. Oh, I think I vividly remember that news headline. Yeah, the data made it seem like things were spiraling out of control, but it wasn't, right? That is correct, Jim. This misconception was due to the fact that we were increasing our ability to test. Given the fact that during that time, there were shortages of testing and test kits around the world, but how were you able to conduct so many tests every day? Well, to spare hospitals from being overrun, Korean officials opened 600 testing centers and innovated drive-through testing stations to reduce face-to-face -face contact indoors. Yeah, that was a pretty smart way of testing. Tell me what the process was like to go through a drive-through test. It's a fairly simple process to go through, but it's very efficient. Like a real fast food restaurant, there are different drive-through windows, right? Right. So like having windows, there are different stations in which one goes through. So for one, they get your temperature, interview you, and get your information for contact tracing. And then the next one is where they take a nose or mouth swab. The whole process can be done in around 10 minutes, which is why most people choose to go here rather than in community health centers. Extremely efficient and thrice as effective. Amazing. Okay, now let's go to contact tracing. How were you able to keep track of patients who tested positive? I'll let you in on the secret to South Korea's COVID-19 response. Its success is mostly attributed to their aggressive case-based contact tracing by targeted mass testing of communities and pursued identification of positive cases and their contacts. Firstly, the South Korean government greatly increased the capacity of their contact tracers, the Epidemic Intelligence Service or EIS, by training staff at approximately 250 local public health centers and by hiring epidemiologists. And you're saying that's just one aspect of it? Yep. Following the flawed response to the MERS outbreak in the past, the government amended the Infectious Disease Control and Prevention Act, with the legislation giving health officials warrantless access to four major types of information. In addition to medical records, patient and doctor interviews, EIS officers can easily retrieve surveillance camera footage, credit card transaction logs, and geolocation data from cell phones and cars. This allowed the contact tracers to recreate an infected person's route on days prior to their symptom onset. Considering one's privacy, whether it be online or not, is such a hot topic in this day and age, that can raise some serious privacy concerns. What was the public's reaction to this? Well, while this was being legislated, 84% of Koreans agreed that public health security was in fact more important than privacy. I'm sure that people would not just agree to giving up their privacy without some level of security though, right? Of course! The government utilized ICT to increase transparency and empower their citizens. The local government publicly disclosed the recent whereabouts of new patients by sending prompt messages to everyone near the vicinity. A detailed log of each infected person's movement is accessible through their respective district website. This permitted each citizen to track their own movements against those of suspected cases and to immediately self-isolate in the case of probable contact. Building up on what Jed said, how about mass compliance among the people? Ah, yes. In South Korea, it has become very common already to wear face masks in public places due to air pollution. So when the government told us to wear face masks, it was not a problem as it is already a social norm here. Wow, that's really great. So how are things right now? 
South Korea has already eased their social distancing measures to its lowest level since October 13. This is to help cope with our weakening economy. High-risk businesses such as nightclubs and karaoke bars have reopened, while fans have returned to the stands in professional sports at 30% capacity. So just to wrap things up, what is your rundown of South Korea's response to COVID-19? Ultimately, South Korea's success can mostly be attributed to our government-driven openness in communication. They hold press conferences twice a day, allowing reporters to raise their concerns. In addition, their websites provide up-to-date information and communicate the latest guidance to the public. We also have that unique contact tracing system and really great testing strategies to go with it. Man, South Korea is really something else. Tell me about it. Off to the next country. Thanks, Kat, and we'll see you around. Nearly tore my arm off, man. You don't have to be so in a rush. It's not like we have other places to be. But we do. Why do I keep forgetting that? Right, right. All right, let's get a hold of our partner from Vietnam. Hello, Hello Nicole. Xin chào, Jim and Jed. Just to jump right into it, can you tell me more about how Vietnam has dealt with the pandemic? Seems like almost everything is back to normal. Yes, Jim, it has. In fact, our daily confirmed cases of COVID-19 is at 4.9 cases. What? Wait, how did they do this? What made your COVID-19 response so good? Well, Vietnam deployed rapid prevention and controlled measures from early stages. Vietnam combined extensive efforts for isolating infected people and tracing quarantining contacts. Government response was so organized so that it can make countrywide policies that get enacted quickly and efficiently. The people of Vietnam were also involved in the COVID-19 response. That's really interesting. How about testing and contact tracing? How does this differ from the implementation of other countries? Testing then became a tool for detection and contact tracing. Vietnam increased testing capacity by increasing nationwide testing kits. Given our low number of cases, we decided on a strategy of using testing to identify clusters and prevent a wider transmission. When community transmission was detected, even with just one case, the government's fast response with commune-level lockdowns and widespread local testing ensured no cases were missed. Vietnam also increased the number of laboratories that can test for COVID-19. Testing and contact tracing is based on a four-level principle announced by the health ministry. The process's approach was that it identified and quarantined suspected cases based on their epidemiological risk on a fifth infection and not whether they exhibited symptoms. It worked in levels and the process are as follows. First, once a patient with COVID-19 is identified, or F0, local public health officials with support from health professionals, security officers, the military, and other civil servants work with the patient to identify who they might have been in contact with and infected the past 14 days. Second, all close contacts, or F1s, defined as people who have been within approximately 6 feet or 2 meters or defined as having prolonged contact for 30 or more minutes with a confirmed COVID-19 case are identified by this process and tested for the virus. Third, if F1s test positive for the virus, they are placed in isolation at the hospital. All COVID-19 patients are hospitalized at no cost in Vietnam, regardless of symptoms. If F1s do not test positive, they are quarantined at the government-run quarantine center for 14 days. Close contacts, 
of the previously identified cases, our close contacts, F2s, are required to self-isolate at home for 14 days. In summary, we didn't just do a lot of testing. It was not random or mass testing. When a case was found, close contacts of those cases were found and tested, and close contacts of those cases did the same, and the cycle was repeated. We had the high test to case rates, but not high to test population rates. This explains why Vietnam has performed more tests per confirmed case than any other country in the world even though testing per capita remains relatively low. Hmm. Okay. What about any other different interventions Vietnam implemented? To increase vigilance, the government has also released a mobile app called NCOV, which provides the public a map of detected cases and clusters of infections. Users can also declare their own health status and alert the authority about suspected infections in their area. It's also pretty cool because it provides the real-time movement of people placed under quarantine. Regular text messages and informative songs easily understandable to the public were also used. Vietnam's health ministry teamed up with pop singers to produce an educational song about the virus. The song Gen Covi or Jealous Coronavirus is a very popular song here. It promotes and reminds the public of healthy practices such as washing hands and not touching your face regularly. We also commissioned artists to create posters and used influencers to broadcast positive messages to those under mandatory quarantine. I think that's a very unique way of getting information about COVID-19 out to the public. Very good. Yes, it is. Vietnam also made use of its propaganda machine to run a vigorous awareness campaign drawing on wartime imagery to unite the public in the fight against a common enemy. Doctors and nurses were even referred to as soldiers. The Vietnamese government definitely did not downplay the threat of COVID-19 but instead communicated its dangers in clear, strong terms. They were also very proactive, not hesitating to restrict movement and balancing overt caution with precision. I think that is very important. You mentioned about the people being involved. Can you explain more about this? The campaign of fighting COVID-19 was not the sole duty of the government, but also making sure strategies are multidisciplinary and includes people from different sectors. What we are learning from the event is the importance of the country's unity. We trusted our government because they communicated frequently and kept us informed and involved in the COVID-19 response. That is a lot to take in, but I can see why they've had everything under control even with little healthcare resources. Also, effective communication with the public during these times can make all the difference. Get ready, Jed. We're leaving right now. Wait, we didn't even get the thing. <sighs> you really gotta stop doing that. You'll get used to it. We don't have a lot of time. So, where are we headed now? I was thinking we could have a slight detour on the way back to the Philippines. A stopover? Why? Didn't we visit all the countries that had great response to COVID-19 already? Well, there is this one country. They had a great response at first, but everything went south pretty damn fast. We could probably learn a thing or two from them. I still have no idea what country you're talking about. Hey Alyssa, how's it going? Ahoy! This is the Czech Republic. Whoa, seems like things are pretty chaotic here. What happened? I heard that the Czech Republic was doing well. Seeing things as they are now, I guess they're not. You're right, Jim. 
The Czech Republic was once widely praised for its best initial response to the pandemic by quickly imposing a strict lockdown and adopting a strict mask mandate. Unfortunately, it has now become one of the worst-hit countries in the world. Our daily confirmed cases currently sit at 12,080.29 cases. Wow, that's a huge number! What happened? The Czech Republic appears to be a victim of its success. The government's quick response spared the country to the worst of COVID-19 during its peak in summer. With the epidemic largely in control, the country gradually eased up on its lockdown restrictions and masks were no longer required in most places. They prematurely celebrated their success, with thousands of Czechs gathering at Prague's Charles Bridge in July, sans physical distancing I might add, to bid farewell to the pandemic. The country declared a state of emergency on October 5, but the damage has been done. With the second wave of coronavirus in full swing, the government reintroduced the strict mask mandate and lockdown regulations, but this time, the public were less compliant. The country's robust health system is being threatened with the rapid soaring of COVID-19 cases, with hundreds of doctors and medical personnel either infected or quarantined. Okay, thanks Alyssa. Is there anything you'd like to say to summarize everything? To some, the COVID-19 response of Czech Republic during the first half was exemplary, but without sustained efforts from both the government and the public, lack of established tracing methods, and miscommunication within the government, the resurgence of coronavirus hit them unaware. Now, the country faces the repercussions of their inaction. That is surely a lesson we must keep in mind. Thanks for that, Alyssa. We'll catch up with... Home sweet home, finally. So given all that we learned assessing different COVID-19 management responses, what can be applied to the Philippine context? Let's get down to synthesizing everything that we've learned thus far. Jed, start us off. Well, Jim, firstly, the simple but effective act of thoroughly communicating public health measures to the general populace must not be underestimated. This respects the people's intelligence and provides us with the opportunity to work together as a nation to defeat the virus. This entails a clear, consistent, and serious narrative which is essential to maintain an open communication between the government and the governed public. In addition, a strong whole-of-society approach engages multi-sectoral stakeholders in the decision-making process and activates a cohesive participation of appropriate measures. That doesn't sound bad, actually. Second, there is also the need for early and organized action. Early action includes border closures, appropriate testing strategies, and lockdowns that can curb community spread. Perhaps we can adopt Vietnam's plan in increasing the test-to-case ratio in line with our lockdowns. Contact tracing can help facilitate a targeted containment strategy, and quarantines based on possible exposure rather than symptoms only can reduce asymptomatic and presymptomatic transmission. Although we can't track people based on CCTV cameras or credit cards, we can probably adapt the extensive use of mobile applications, a lot of which are already being developed. I definitely agree with you, Jim. Lastly, it's also important to note that while it's impractical to make major changes to our healthcare system now, a robust, more decentralized healthcare network may prepare us for the next pandemic. This includes investment in a public health infrastructure. Emergency operation centers and surveillance systems enable countries to have a head start in managing public health crisis effectively. 
ideally, we should be prepared to get hit anywhere in the country, not just in the metro or major cities. Alright, looks like the COVID-19 world tour is over. It's been a real journey, Jim. Sure was. But before we end the show, we would like to thank all of you who are still here with us. Thank you. Thank you for being part of this journey and we hope that you learned a lot from this podcast. COVID-19 World Tour would not have been possible without you, our listeners. Our team would also like to thank our professors, Doc Wong and Mam Fowler for their guidance. The tour would not have been a success without the both of you. As always, we would like to remind you to please practice proper physical distancing. Wash your hands thoroughly and wear your masks because they work. This is also your reminder to register and vote for the upcoming election and hopefully select leaders with the best intentions for the country and most likely to exemplify what the gold standard countries did. On behalf of epi to me we hope that you had a safe and enlightening trip here at the COVID-19 World Tour.